Hello and welcome back to Days Gone By, a podcast that's part of the Scattered Abroad Network. My name is Jamison Stewart, and today's episode of Days Gone By is a sermon that was preached by Tom Holland. The title of his sermon is The Challenges of Worship. He preached this sermon uh, several years back at the West Hob Street Church of Christ in Athens, Alabama. I hope you enjoy this episode of Days Gone By with Tom Holland. May I begin with the understatement of the day. I am happy to be here. I am honored to be here. I rejoice that the good men who serve as the elders of this church for whom we were just praying have given me this privilege of coming to be with you as you celebrate 50 years of service in the kingdom of heaven. Like many of you and former President George W. Bush, who has read the Bible through every year since 1987, we read the Bible through every year. And I started several years ago in reading the Bible. I would put down where I was when I was reading a certain portion of Scripture. I'm preparing a Bible for each of my grandkids, and I hope someday they'll appreciate that. So in my Bible for today, up at the top, I wrote, I'm over in Deuteronomy, I wrote, I'm with the West Hobbs congregation in Athens, Alabama. They're celebrating their 50th anniversary. So somewhere down the road, maybe one of my grandkids will pick that up and say, well, I know where Granddad was on that occasion. Very, very happy privilege. I take a different version and read that through each year. One year for my Old Testament, I was reading the Jewish Tanakh, and I told one of our students at school what I was doing. I said, when I get through, I'm going to get me a Jewish New Testament. <laughs> you know, you can now do that. Really, you can get a, a Jewish Old and New Testament, really. What's the most difficult thing you've ever tried to do? Will you agree with me that there are some jobs that are more demanding than other jobs? I believe that working at a McDonald's would not be quite as demanding as being a nuclear scientist. Now, I've never been a nuclear scientist, but in 1948 I was being trained for short order cook here. And uh, obviously I didn't make it, but at least I was in training for it. And... Uh, but some things are more difficult. I found in college that phys ed classes, and I'm not putting that down, I found that physical education classes were not as demanding as language classes. You get me into that, then, you know, that, that is a real challenge. And I'll tell you one of the reasons I got interested in the work in Guyana, I wanted to give part of my life to mission work. And when I heard the report down at Amherst, that you didn't have to gear up for another language to work in Guyana, I got real interested. And uh, they, they speak in English down there. Over in the western part, the British have kind of corrupted it, but um, they tell me they can understand me well. I struggle to understand them. I was uh, preaching one Sunday as I was coming out at, at Kitty in Georgetown, and, and I told the brethren, I said, you know, when we're singing... I can understand everything that we're singing. But sometimes when you're talking to me, I have to really put forth an effort to understand you. So when I get through today, 
If you appreciate this lesson, I would appreciate it if at the back you would say, Brother Tom, I really enjoyed that lesson, and then I'll know. I'll know very clearly. Well, i got to get on the program here. Difficult things. What is the most difficult thing you have ever undertaken in your life? It's probably happened right here. The most demanding, challenging, difficult thing for any human being is to truly worship God. To do something that the eternal God of heaven and earth will pause in His honor as we seek to adore and praise and magnify. And I thought as we were singing that beautiful hymn, Lord, we come before Thee now. At Thy feet we humbly bow. And that last line, Grant that all may seek, and I'll get back to that in a minute, seek and find Thee a God supremely kind. I hope and I pray that I can be a true worshiper to God. But God, by His grace, let me write a book about worship in 2008. And uh, it's entitled, True Worship, True or Corrupted. And it has kind of a little introduction on the front page. True worship, the mind's greatest challenge and the heart's highest conquest. I believe that. The purpose of this lesson today is not to discourage any of us in our efforts to worship God. It's to challenge all of us, to put our hearts and minds and souls into it. Every Lord's Day where I preach, first thing that happens after the announcements are made. You know, we love to visit like you do here, and I love that. I love it as much as anyone. But the first thing that happens, I get in the pulpit, and I say, now, up to this point, all the emphasis has been on us. We've been visiting with each other. We've been enjoying that. The announcements have concerned us, people that are sick, those that have experienced sorrow, etc. But starting now, let's shift. Let's take our minds, and I'll say probably some of you are hurting right now, either physically or emotionally. But let's take our minds. You know, the Apostle Peter said, gird up the loins of your mind. Let's take our minds up to God. Starting now, God will be the focus of what's going to happen here. You know why I learned that? That God is the focus? I learned it from Jesus. In John 4, 23 and 24, the Savior said, The hour cometh and now is when the true worshipers shall worship the Father in spirit and in truth, for the Father seeketh such to worship Him. God is a spirit, and they that worship Him must worship Him in spirit and in truth. God is the audience of true worship. I thought a long time about when I became a Christian, that August the 7th, 1943. I wish my father or someone had immediately sat me down and said, Now, Tom, one of the things that God expects of his people is true worship. And it's hard to do. I mean, you don't do it accidentally. You don't do it haphazardly. You have to put your mind on it. 
and put your heart in it for it to be true worship to God. Some studies have been done about worship. I mentioned last night Barner's book, Revolution, and they do survey trying to keep up with religious trends and social trends in this country. They have for years. In that book, he makes this observation, and, and make allowance now for denominational terminology. Eight out of every ten believers do not feel that they have entered into the presence of God or experienced a connection with Him during the worship service. That's a pretty high percent, don't you think? I wonder how that would rate among us. I mean, if a survey were done of this congregation, would it be 100% during the worship service, everyone is in it totally and completely? Now, that book, done in 2005, was followed by another book. Barna, George Barna, had an associate, Frank Biola, and they did a book called Pagan Christianity. Some of our brethren read the first part of that book, and they were telling me, you've got to read that book. Those fellows are so close to the truth, it's unreal. Well, they didn't read all the book. I read the whole book. and But I do want to read something that they say on page four. As startling as it may sound, almost everything that is done in our contemporary churches has no basis in the Bible. As pastors preach from their pulpits about being biblical and following the pure word of God, their words betray them. The truth is that precious little that is observed today in the contemporary Christianity maps to anything found in the New Testament church. They know what they're talking about. And then on the next page, they made this observation. If the truth be told... We Christians, we Christians never seem to ask why we do what we do. Instead, we blithely carry out our religious traditions without asking where they came from. Most Christians who claim to uphold the integrity of God's Word have never sought to see if what they do every Sunday has any scriptural backing. How do we know this? Because if they did, it would lead them to some very disturbing conclusions that would compel them by conscience to forever abandon what they're doing. Things that are being done in so-called worship in the United States right now are absolutely alarming and even shocking. As one noted denominational leader says, they still use the word worship to try to give respectability to whatever they're going to be doing. Well, there are churches in Nashville, Tennessee that have bands, you know, worship bands. I mean, the drums and the whole nine yards. Now, they throw in the name of Jesus along with their rock music, and they throw in the name of God, but the sounds basically alike. And, uh, you know, one of the things, and I don't listen to much so-called uh, rock music and uh, no rap, but anyway... You know, a lot of this, you get to my age, you don't hear anything but racket. Uh, it's hard to pick up the words. I was taken, I was in Scotland in a meeting, and they took me to what they said was equivalent to our Super Bowl in this country. And uh, it was a drunken party, to tell you the truth about it. 
And at, at the halftime, they brought out a Scottish band in their kilts. They were, they were going to play for us. Well, man, you couldn't hear anything but the drum. Those people were cursing. They were singing. They were shouting. I mean, it went on the whole time. And um, I wonder how many people in a so-called worship service, about all they hear is that racket up there. One cold winter day, I went over to Hardin County, Tennessee, down on the Tennessee River to preach a funeral. And uh, a little denominational church. So right before the service, they came to me and they said, we don't have anybody to lead singing. Would you lead singing? I said, I'll be happy to if you won't let anybody get up there and start playing on that piano. They said, okay, okay, that's fine. So I just sang old songs everybody knew, you know, sweet by and by. And uh, out at the cemetery, one of their members came up to me and said, that's the prettiest singing we've ever heard in that building. It's probably the only singing they'd ever heard because of the racket. God knew his business in telling his people to sing and where to make the melody, as we'll get into briefly. But I, I want to urge us all to remember three things that are absolutely imperatives if we are true worshipers of God. Number one, we must know God. How well do you know God? I'm not trying to reflect on your spirituality. I'm just, think about it. I, I keep asking myself, how well do I know God. When David was about to die, he called his son Solomon to him and he said, And thou, Solomon, my son, know thou the God of thy fathers and serve him with a perfect heart and with a willing mind. For the Lord knows all hearts, understands all the imaginations of the thoughts. If you seek him, he will be found of you. If you forsake him, he will cast you off forever. First Chronicles 28 and verse 9. The Apostle Paul came to one of the intellectual centers of his day, Athens, Greece. I mean, by the time Paul got there, Athens had already produced Plato and his illustrious student, Aristotle. Athens had already produced Zeno, who taught his students out on the stoa, or the porch, and they called them the Stoics. Epicurus had already taught his schools there. And uh, the great minds, the great philosophers had already walked across the stage now, here came the Apostle Paul, and uh, he delivered the so-called Mars Hill Discourse. Profound. I mean, master's theses, I know, have been written on the Mars Hill Discourse. And Paul said, you men of Athens, as I passed by and beheld your devotions, I found an altar with this inscription, to an unknown God. Now, watch this line. Whom therefore you ignorantly worship. May I be a true worshiper if I'm ignorant of God, uninformed about the will of God? Those are rhetorical questions, obviously. Now, I don't know how those philosophers reacted to that. We know by looking back up in verse 18 of Acts 17 that he'd already had his encounter with the Epicurean and Stoic philosophers. They, they were right there. I don't know how they reacted to that line, you're ignorant with regard to your worship. But it was true. And then he, he gave this great discussion on God's reality. And, and if you analyze it, you see coming right at you the cosmological argument. There's a universe. It exists. We know it exists. And there's a Lord who created it. And then when he gets through with that one, you keep examining. Here comes the teleological argument. 
there is design. He said, you know, uh, we ought not to think that the Godhead is likened unto gold, silver, and stone, graven by art and man's device. In essence, he said, look at yourself. And then he finally got down to the moral argument. He said, the times of this ignorance, God overlooked or winked at, but now commandeth he all men everywhere to repent, because God hath appointed a day in which he will judge the world in righteousness by that man whom he hath ordained, whereof he hath given assurance unto all men, and that he hath raised him from the dead. In essence, he's saying, gentlemen, I want to tell you something. You are a moral creature, and God is going to judge you someday. And you better change your mind, and you better start thinking about this Jesus I've been preaching to you, and you better surrender your will and your life to him and let him become your savior. You see, we cannot worship God in ignorance. And worship is so demanding that there were people that tried to do it and Jesus had to say to them, it's vain. It's vain worship. It has no content. It's noise. It's empty. And these were religious people, mind you. They were a little upset. You read this in Matthew 15. They were upset because... They said, you know, the disciples are, are eating without the ceremonial cleansing of their hands. They are violating a tradition, a tradition of the elders. Why are they doing that? And Jesus answered by saying, well, why are you transgressing a commandment of God by your tradition? God said, honor your father and mother. You've got a tradition. You, you take money that you should give to help your parents to honor them. And Mark even uses the word they use. They'd say, it's Corbin. It's Corbin. It's dedicated to God. And they'd excuse themselves. Had a tradition. Jesus said, Well did Isaiah prophesy of you. This people draweth nigh to me with their mouth and honoreth me with their lips, but their heart is far from me. In vain do they worship me. In vain. Empty. No content. You see, worship's not easy. And then Paul talked about will worship in the last verse of Colossians. So he said, which things have indeed a show of wisdom and will worship? What's will worship? It's what I want. How many people are right there today? I want what I want. Not what God wants. What do our religious neighbors want? What what will really appeal to people? That's totally missing it. What appeals to God? He is the focus of true worship. How well do you know him? Now, to get to know him, you have to seek him. In fact, Paul told the Athenians that. He said, uh, he's not far from any one of us. We may uh, seek after him and feel after him and find him. But you've got to seek him. You've got to use your intellect. And you have to use your heart. Seek after him, feel after him, and you can find him. One Saturday, I had the opportunity of speaking to a retreat of students from Austin Peay University, and this was my subject. You can seek after God, and you can feel after God, and you can find God. Regardless of your unbelieving professors, you personally can find God. But it takes a lot of seeking, and you better go to the right source to seek him, and that's his word of truth. When I think about knowing God, how do you get to know God? Let me illustrate it like this. How do you get to know another human being? I submit to you it'll be through communication and association. I'm going to give you a safe statistic. I will assert 
that 85% of the people in the United States who marry, marry somebody they've dated. I believe that's pretty safe right there. What is dating? It's an effort to try to get to know a person before you marry them. You really have to be married to them about five years before you get to know them. I was speaking down in Jasper and made some kind of observation about how long it takes to get to know people. And this little short man came up to me and kind of quietly said, I've been married over 60 years and I still don't know my wife. Well, that's Walker County. You know, they, they're slow learners down there. But how do you get to know God? You have to have an association with Him. But God is spirit. And here I am in a fleshly body. You got it. When the Bible says there in Genesis 5 that Enoch walked with God, how could he do that? Here's Enoch on this earth in a flesh and blood body, and he's walking with God. Keep reading it over there about Noah. Noah walked with God. How can you do that? God is in heaven. We're on earth. You can walk with him. Get into his word. Have you ever received a letter from someone and you just you read that thing and you just kind of feel like, I know what they're thinking. You know, I, I know their, their thought, their heart. I used to love to call my brother and colleague, Brother William Woodson, and say, William, I need to pick your brain about patches of Scripture. Just want to pick your brain. Want to get into the way you're thinking. You know, we can do that with another human being. Now, woe be to the man who imagines he already knows what his wife is thinking before she reveals it to him. He's in for a surprise. Uh, you better... What man... The Bible says in 1 Corinthians 2, What man knoweth the things of man, save the spirit of man that is within him. You better kind of get a few clues as to what's going on there. I think about knowing God. Now... Associating with the people of God. One of my favorite verses is 1 John 3.14. We know that we have passed from death to life because we love the brethren. You know, there's an apologetic right there. How do I know that I'm living in Christ? How do you relate to your brethren? You love them? You love to be with them? Had you rather be with your brethren... Or with people of the world. Now we have to associate with people of the world. Otherwise Paul said you've got to go out of it. First Corinthians chapter 5. But I'm going to tell you something. I feel more comfortable with my brethren than I do people of the world. And I know many of you probably are in work situations. You, you have to listen to all that stuff constantly. But it should be refreshing to come and be with the people of God I went out to Houston one night to make a speech, and a lawyer met me at the airport and took me into town. And uh, he, he was a faithful child of God. He said, you know, Tom, I have to get together with my brethren about three times a week to survive spiritually. He said, the folks I'm around, if they even mention God, it's taking his name in vain. And all this profanity and vulgarity, he said, I have to get with people that think differently, that talk differently. Associate with the people of God. And that's one way you get to know Him. And then communication. Ah, communication. I want to, maybe you already do this. I want to beg you to do something. When you get down to read your Bible, just pause long enough and say, Lord, 
I know you're trying to tell me something right here. I'm just going to open my mind and free my heart, and you tell me what you want to tell me. See what that will do to your Bible reading. That will personalize it. I promise. It does for me. And then I think about getting into this Word, and I get into the mind of God. Now, can you think of anything more profound than that? Getting into the mind of God. Getting into the mystery over in the New Covenant. That which people could never know unless God reveals it. And then going to that revelation and and understanding, I am getting into the mind of Almighty God. And then once you become His child, as you, a believer, turn in penitence away from the life of the world, sweeten your lips with the Lord's precious name, Submit to His command to be baptized, believing that it will put you in contact with His soul-cleansing blood. Raised to walk, the Scripture says, in newness of life. Now another line of communication. I can absolutely communicate with Almighty God. And He will listen. And He will respond. Sometimes He may respond with a no. I've lived long enough to understand that some of the great blessings God has given to, to me have been no answers to some of my prayers. So that at the time, I prayed as sincerely as any, anyone. But God is omniscient. He knew better. No. And sometimes you just have to wait on the Lord. He, he doesn't operate on our time schedule. have to be patient. And then sometimes the answer comes straight to you. I get... I guess you would say sometimes just amused at some answers that God gives to prayer. And and I'll just, I have a little thing that I use all the time at home, that God is, is great. Thank you, Father, for this day, all the blessings you send my way. Thank you for your loving care and all that makes the day so fair. I sing that to God over and over. God is a precious person to know. And when you get to know Him, worshiping Him is about as normal as breathing. And a worship assembly is not a burden to be born. It's a privilege to be experienced. When my children were growing up, I never one time said to them, well, we've got to go to church. I didn't even want them to hear that. I wanted them to understand we're talking about a privilege here, an opportunity. A potential joy for your life, a blessing for your heart. Now, second, quickly, if I'm going to be a true worshiper of God, and that's what he wants, that's what Jesus said, God is seeking true worshipers. Jesus didn't say God is seeking worshipers. There's a reason for that. People are normally worshipers. Arnold Toynbee, the British scholar in his study of the religions of man, said in all human history, man has never worshipped one of three things. He's worshipped nature. And you and I would understand that nature worship has ranged all the way from pagan throwing a baby into a river to appease the wrath of a so-called God to contemporary scientism or the idea that science has the solution to all of man's problems. Second, Toynbee said man has worshipped self. Now, if there has ever been a society that was sold on self-worship, we're right in the middle of it in this culture. It's a... I, me, my culture. There have been people that have walked away from a family because they had to go and authenticate themselves. It's happened with men. It's happened with women. There have been children 
that were basically rejected. Oh, I, I know. There's a sophistication. You know, we'll, we'll take this little child and put him in a daycare center. We've got, we got things to do. A man who owned two daycare centers in Tennessee told me that there were people who would bring their child to a daycare center, and then when it was time for them to get off from work, they'd come and take the child and take it to a babysitter. And we wonder why we have troubles with young people. Shouldn't wonder. When I think about loving God, you love God? You know, sometimes it's easy to love God. It really is. You know, you feel good, sun is shining, sky is blue, birds are singing, paying your debts, things are well with you. God, I really love you. And then a storm comes. An emotional storm knocks you down. And you pray and you pray and you pray. And God doesn't seem to answer. Death comes. Snatches a little child from you. And you say, God, what have I done to deserve this? I don't criticize people for saying why. You know, over in Jackson's hospital years ago, when Dr. Jackson told me that my little girl didn't live, you know what I said? God, what have I done to deserve this? So I don't criticize people for asking why. But I do urge people, learn from the book of Job about suffering. Any kind, emotional, physical. You've got to wait all the way through that book to see the end. Job is wondering why. Good man, all these dear friends, all three of them came there to comfort him. You know what they started doing? Sat there and looked at him for seven days. Well, that'd, that'd be really comforting, wouldn't it? Somebody comes to the hospital to see you, they just sit there and look like a buzzard complex, you know, just looking at you. That's what he was having to go through. And then they started saying, we know why you're suffering, because you're a sinner. All human suffering is because of personal sin, and that philosophy has been around for a long, long... There are a lot of conservative Bible scholars that date the book of Job right into the Genesis era. If that's true, then one of the first problems that people had to grapple with on this earth after sin came and marred life here was why we have to suffer. But you get the point in the book of Job, if you hold on to God, he'll see you through, and the end will be better than you ever possibly imagined. One of my favorite songs is, when you walk through a storm, hold your head up high, and don't be afraid of the dark. At the end of the storm is a golden sun and the sweet silver song of the lark. So you walk on with hope in your heart, and you never walk alone. Job learned that. And oh, God opened the windows of heaven and poured out the blessings to him. Loving God. You know what Jesus said in response to the question, what's the great commandment of the law? He said, you love God with all of your heart, all of your soul, and all of your mind. Take that God-given intellect and love God with it. Take your heart and love God with that heart. Then you worship him. I have to know God to really worship Him. 
I have to love him to be motivated to do it. And then finally, quickly, if I'm going to be a true worshiper, I must connect to God in that worship. Now, you can, you can take your New Testament, the new covenant under which we live, the covenant in which God through Jeremiah, quoted in Hebrews 8, said, They'll not teach every man his neighbor and every man his brother, saying, Know the Lord, for all shall know me, from the least to the greatest. You can take that new covenant and you can find those five, I call them avenues, you call them acts of worship, that's fine with me, maybe it's just a semantic challenge. I think of an avenue, a way we get up to the throne of God. Now, I'm going to start with the first one, the one we've already engaged in, and that's singing. You know, singing is a wonderful experience. God knew his business in telling us to sing, and he knew his business in telling us the instrument, he specifies the instrument that he wants to accompany that singing. So you pick a passage like Ephesians 5, 18, 19, be not drunk with wine, where is an excess, but be filled with the Spirit. Speaking to yourselves in psalms and hymns and spiritual songs, singing, period, no, singing and making melody in your heart to the Lord. And then he goes on to say, whatever you do in word or deed, do all in his name. Making melody. Does God want melody made? Yeah. On what, a bunch of drums? A piano? A violin? or Name it. No, he tells us where he wants the melody. In our hearts. You know, singing is far more than just correlating words to a science of music. And, and I love, you know, the fellow said, what are those little funny looking things there in the songbook? You know, those are notes. And uh, back in the good days when we had those old singing schools, you know, but when good farmers laid crops by by the 4th of July, and then we'd have a little slack time, have a singing school. I mean, run it all day. I went to one at Cedar Grove, two weeks long. And we'd do that, do re mi fa so la do, half step, whole step, one flag, two flags, dot, and all of this. But I'm going to tell you, there's a lot more to singing that, than putting my voice properly at, at that particular little sign right there. As important as that is, singing is very demanding if you do it right. It involves your heart. Listen to Colossians 3.16. Paul said, Let the word of Christ dwell in you richly, in all wisdom, teaching and admonishing one another with psalms and hymns and spiritual songs, singing with grace or favor in your hearts to the Lord. The Lord God is the audience of our singing. And if we worship in song, He gets the praise and adoration and the glory and the appreciation. But it's demanding. It's very, very demanding. Now, this experience right here. Did you ever play church when you were a kid? Am I the only one that ever played church? You know, we'd have cracker for the bread, usually water for the fruit of the vine, and, and we'd play church. Kids can do that. But I promise you, it takes a spiritually mature young person or middle-aged or older person 
to do this. You know what the Holy Spirit inspired Paul to call that? A communion? One of the most profound discussions I've ever read of this is 1 Corinthians chapter 10. Now, the most detailed is the next chapter, but the most profound. Paul said, I speak as unto wise men, judge you what I say. The cup of blessing which we bless, is it not the communion of the blood of Christ? The bread which we break, is it not the communion of the body of Christ? Seeing we who are many are one bread and one body, for we all partake of that one bread. Now, growing up, we had, and, and some of you may remember, we had preaching at Pleasant Valley twice a month. And the other times we'd get there, we'd sing, then we'd have Bible study, and then we'd come back, sing a little more. And, and I, I heard it as a kid so many times. A man would get up and say, it's now time for the communion. Well, I really didn't know other than I knew communion had to do with the Lord's Supper because that's what happened. Later on, I had an opportunity to study the word translated communion. It's that koinonia word. It means literally joint participation. It's fellowship. When I am partaking of this memorial to the Lord Jesus Christ, I have the potential of uniting with my Savior. And it's interesting to me, he talks about the cup before he does the bread. That's not the way Jesus instituted it. Go to the next chapter, he took bread, and after that, the cup. Why that emphasis on the cup? Because everything we have as a child of God, our redemption, our justification, our reconciliation, it's all tied to the blood of Christ. It's all because of the Lord's death. And that in no way is to minimize the importance of the bread, which is partaking of his body. And I'm not talking about transubstantiation. I've read about that doctrine. I'm not talking about that. I'm talking about a communion in two tangible things. Not many tangible things associated with Christianity. Water and the bread and the fruit of the vine. But I'm talking about having a fellowship, a joint participation with the Lord Jesus Christ in this profound moment. Lord's Supper. Now, Bill, I haven't seen the lights blink. No, I'm going to have to quit. I'm sorry. I, I didn't hear it. They've been telling me at Riggs for two years I've got to get a hearing aid. Well, obviously I need one. There were other things I had hoped to say, but I want to thank you for your good attention. Now, as I said in the beginning, I don't want to discourage any of us. I won't challenge us. Let's resolve, all of us, to be the true worshipers whom God is seeking. He will be honored and we will be blessed. Thank you so much for listening to this episode on the Scattered Abroad Network. We are grateful for your continued support as well as your continued prayers. If you would like to find out more about our network, please visit our website at scatteredabroad.org. We look forward to studying with you again soon. May God bless you.